You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here at the Conservative Conscience on Westwood One Network, powered by CRTV. And no, I did not get a sex change operation. I am just deathly sick with the bubonic plague. No, Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm just really... My, my voice is gone today, so we're going to have a special guest, our next uh, installment of Meet the Candidates in a couple moments, uh, so you won't have to hear my crazy voice. You know, I was thinking, it's uh, probably the only curse of marriage, such a beautiful institution created by God. It's only a blessing, but uh, you know, you, you, occasionally you catch the illnesses of your spouse, and in this case, I caught my wife's, uh, and then I had the crazy... I mean, fortuitous timing of Sunday taking my kids out to play baseball. And then, you know, I, I love hitting out balls, just whacking them. And I, I took their bat for a little bit and started hitting out balls, and I just went nuts with it. And I didn't realize till later on that my entire midsection would be just paralyzed with Charlie horses. <laughs> I'm just so sore. So now I didn't know I'd be getting a cold. And then every time I sneeze, it feels like I broken ribs. So anyway, really, uh, <clears throat> really tough weekend. So I'm only operating at half capacity today, but we still have a lot of stuff out at Conservative Review. We have the truth about the drug crisis. We have the truth about this criminal justice deform agenda with the prison population plummeting, not going up. It's actually going down. Um, Very seminal article coming out today. Uh, If it's up in time, we'll put it in show notes. We got our article on Iran and what we should and shouldn't be doing in the Middle East to realign our interests for America first, the problems with Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere, the immigration problems. So we're going to get to that hopefully if I'm better by Friday, we might do another Foreign Policy Friday with Jordan Schachtel, and we'll bring him in and discuss a lot of this stuff. Uh, before we bring on our special guest, uh, our next candidate, Chris Harrod from Utah, I want to just address one point about the caravan. And, and, and believe it or not, there are things more important than Kane West going on uh, for conservative to, conservatives to latch themselves onto. The notion that someone could just invade our country and say, ha, 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 there's asylum laws, you got to process me. We've obviously noted this ad nauseum. We have a lot of articles out that we're misinterpreting the UAC statute, the asylum statute. But I want to make it very clear that over and beyond everything else, over and beyond all of that, even if you know that is what statute meant – what people don't understand is there's no such thing as stolen sovereignty. That is at, at the core of really the social compact as we speak about in Stolen Sovereignty, my book. We've talked about, again, ad nauseum here. But it's also written into statute and it's written into the Constitution. So A, the president has from Section 212F of the INA 
what I call the circuit board shutoff. That you know, there's certain leniencies that you could get, but the president could override all of those and just say, "This is a danger to our country." When I say danger, it doesn't say national security. That's a misreading of the statute. It means any reason. These people are a public charge. These people are you know going to hurt our culture. Any reason he could say no. He doesn't have to prove it. It's not justicable. Um, you know, it is it is plenary power. But then even without Congress's delegated authority, as I noted before, there's inherent Article II powers. It's very important to understand. While Congress has full authority over immigration, the president has full authority over foreign affairs. And when you're dealing with people coming, especially when it's in this deliberate public way that's well organized by NGOs. This is well within the president's Article II powers, even if Congress didn't delegate authority, even if statute explicitly allowed these people to apply for asylum, he could override that. Now, in, in, in order to just understand this, the inner workings of Congress and the presidential power with regards to immigration, um, it's important to remember that you always go by the lowest common denominator of permissibility between the two. So, in other words, sovereignty always wins out. If Congress wants them and the president doesn't, or if the president wants them and Congress doesn't, then they don't get to come in. They both have to want it. Um, Congress controls immigration once they're here, but when they stand at the foot of the border – until they're here, that the president has full authority to keep them out. The president can't deport if statute says otherwise, but but the president can absolutely deny entry because that's not just immigration; that is subject to um, you know foreign policy uh, constraints and obviously foreign policy powers that are over and beyond the presidential power. Uh, the congressional power. I mean, so uh, you know, again, if Congress says we don't want these people, so certainly the president can't then actively bring them in. Um, but conversely, you know, just theoretically, let's say Congress wrote a law saying anyone who comes here, open borders, they they just get to stay. This is it. There is no question in my mind. Even in that situation, the president would have you know you have somewhat of a constitutional constitutional crisis, but you have this often where two full powers. Butt up against each other, and you know you fight it out. So, you know, th- th- there are some signs that they're going to process some of these people. So far, gen- generally speaking, they're doing a good job, but we're going to be watching this very, very closely um, because there's just there's a lot of lies being said, and I think even a lot of administration people are not properly. Um, you know, just vetting this, not giving him the proper legal advice. You know, the the court said, and this was considered settled law by Justice Scalia Nafi Shanasi in 1950, that the exclusion of aliens is a fundamental act of sovereignty. The right to do so stems not alone from legislative power, but is inherent in the executive power to control the foreign affairs of the nation. Um, 
they went on to say the action of the executive officer under such authority is final and conclusive. Whatever the rule may be concerning deportation of persons who have gained entry into the United States, it is not within the province of any court, unless expressly authorized by law, <laughs> to review the determination of the political branch of government to exclude a given alien. Obviously, you and I both know this is going to wind up um, <clears throat> in the courts. One other thing in Lifter v. United States, the court observed that, quote, it is not necessary that the Congress supply administrative officials with a specific formula for their guidance in a field where flexibility and the adaptation of the congressional policy to infinitely variable conditions constitute the essence of a program. And they applied this to immigration that they could adapt and say, look, this is insane. We're not bringing this in. So don't let anyone tell you that, oh, we need to fix statute or something that's not true. Um, it would be great if Congress would get involved and, and you know give him backing, give the president backing on this. Obviously, as we said uh, on Monday, Congress is on another week vacation um, doing who knows what. Meanwhile, tons of other things are getting put in the courts that don't belong in the courts. Um, and by the way, I will talk later next week about the judicial offense, our, our side now going to the courts to say DACA is unconstitutional. Um, while I don't support taking political issues to the court, look, you know, if they're not going to do anything else, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So this will illustrate the absurdity of nationwide injunctions. You'll have one judge say, hey, you must do this. And, and Judge Hannon now, I believe they got Judge Hannon, which is what they wanted in the Southern District of Texas. Will say, he's going to say, you mustn't do this. Well, what do you do? Well, the answer is you follow the Constitution. The courts, no matter what, aren't the law of the land, even when they don't contradict themselves. So, you know, we'll we'll talk about that more next week. Um, I've just about expended way too much of my voice anyway, but wanted to get that out. So, you know, to continue our series on Meet the Candidates, we have waiting on the line very patiently. Uh, Chris Herod is running for Congress, challenging Representative John Curtis in the upcoming primary in Utah 3. There's a lot of unique factors in this race that I want to address today. Um, this is the seat vacated by the former OGR committee chairman, oversight chairman, uh, Jason Chaffetz. He retired midterm last year. <clears throat> there was a primary, and before that, there was a convention, and Herod won the convention with the backing of conservatives, but Curtis was able to void that out with a primary, and he wound up winning there. He's a yes man for leadership. Um, and Chris is challenging him. So Chris was raised in Provo, Utah since 1972. After college, he lived overseas and worked in Moscow and taught in university in Kiev, Ukraine, where he met his wife. He served in the Utah House of Representatives from 2007 to 2012, and then he was later the state director for Ted Cruz for president in 2016. He also authored a book, The Forgotten Immigrant, How Tolerating Illegal Immigration Hurts Immigrants. Very interesting. We're going to talk about that, a book that explains how legal immigrants, the middle class and minorities, are hurt by illegal immigration, um, and we're going to certainly link to that in show notes. Hey, Chris, are you on the line? I am on the line. Thank you very much for having me today. Well, great you're here for more than run, one reason, because I uh, I need a, a break. I need a co-host today, so we're going to really turn <laughs> this over to you. Um, let's just start with the basics. You know how even a notional incumbent and Curtis is kind of a notional incumbent midterm. It's impossible to beat. I mean, we beat them once every five years. Uh, you know, why do you think you have a chance to do the impossible and beat a party incumbent in a primary? 
Well, you know, it, it stems from one of the things that you wrote about, about, you know, Utah has a great caucus system. We are one of the last uh, states in the nation that have a caucus system. And last summer, you know, I won the caucus overwhelmingly. I mean, I got 55% of the vote on the final round. Uh, John got only 3%, uh, you know, before he went out. The most he ever got in any of the process was 9%. The problem that we have is we have this new law that's kind of being forced by the, the Mitt Romney wing, the Michael Levitt, Governor Levitt wing of the Republican Party, the establishment, that they don't like the grassroots. They would much rather have money win the way. And so we've got this, this bill that's called SB 54 that said that the party had to allow signatures going around. So, so last year, anyway, I, I won the uh, convention handily, but then there were two people that had uh, gathered signatures. One of them ran as a conservative. So it was Tanner Ainge, Danny Ainge's son who's kind of new for, for politics. I don't think he fully understood what he was doing, but the two of us actually split the conservative vote and, and uh, Representative Curtis didn't get a majority, only got 43%. And so one of the reasons for that I, I feel very good about it, that is, you know, John didn't get a majority last time. And so you add the two, two conservative voices and I believe that'll make me come out. It, it also comes out too, though, that, John has uh, made a couple missteps. You know, one of the things is he, you know, he's he said very proudly that he voted against the omnibus bill. You know, because Utahns uh, in general are fiscally conservative, and so that was an easy vote to to vote against the big omnibus bill. But he he just thought that he could pull the wool over everybody's eyes. And what he did is he voted for uh, the procedural vote uh, that anybody that's been in the legislature or knows inside you know, kind of inside politics knows that's the real vote. So the fact of the matter is, is you know, the procedural vote to bring it to the floor uh, passed 211 to 207. So had John Curtis voted against it and brought one other person, which, you know, hopefully everybody has the ability to influence at least one person, he could have killed that bill. But he, instead, he was out touting before we started calling them on it that he voted against the Omnibus bill. You know, great people like Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, uh, Ralph Labrador, uh, they all voted against the procedural vote. They knew that that was the real vote. He's done that. One of the other big things that he's made a mistake is, uh, is after the terrible shoot, school shooting in uh, Florida, two days after he issued a letter to all the constituents and saying, hey, you know, if, if it was my child that die, uh, died there, what I would expect is that we look at absolutely everything. Well, here in the state of Utah, uh, the Second Amendment is pretty much non-negotiable. We recognize that that is extremely important. You know, if, if we want to talk about school safety, we can talk about you know, why, you know, if you pay a traffic ticket, there's an armed guard there in justice court, but there isn't one at school. We can talk about whether gun-free zones work. Uh, most of us don't think they work. They're just kind of a big neo sign, a neon sign for, you know, uh, come take advantage here with no resistance. Uh, but But you can't talk about removing the Second Amendment. First off, you know, I believe it's a God-given right. Uh, but for me, you know, there's practical parts of it as well. I've uh, as you mentioned, I've uh, lived overseas a fair amount in my life, uh, you know, taught and studied. And, uh, uh, and I have friends literally that lost both their parents to Stalin's gulags. Uh, my wife grew up in the Ukraine where, you know, a decade after, you know, Stalin and Lenin took away the guns, Stalin starved to death 7 to 11 million Ukrainians in Holodnaya War. Uh, 
which is just, you know, starvation. Uh, I have a friend from Ethiopia. The communists came over, took our country in the 1970s. And within five years, he was having to shout red terror, red terror, red terror. And so for me, that kind of shows where John kind of is. He, you know, I actually, my first race against John was when I ran for the Utah House of Representatives. He switched from being a Republican or a Democrat to being a Republican three days before that race. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But b- back up. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't mean to interrupt you here. This is very important. He was a Democrat. Now, now in the southeast of the United States, there are certain areas where legitimately they were conservative. It was just you know a matter of realignment of the party ID. But wasn't Utah, if you're any bit of a conservative, wasn't that always a Republican state? Yeah, yes. I mean, it, it has been for the last, you know, 50 years. And so for him, you know, and not only was he a, a Democrat, he was actually the chair of the Utah County Republican or Democratic Party. So it's not like he was just, you know, just a rank and file Democrat. He was a Democrat. And so that's where you can see his gut instinct whenever there's a tragedy. And unfortunately, we have too many Republicans that do this as well as, you know, there's a tragedy, they immediately go back to what they think might be popular or they don't understand the, the core principle of the Second Amendment. So his immediate thing is, well, we've got to do something about it. Well, you know, his gut instinct, to, you know, he's floated, well, you know, let's let's make it so uh, 21-year-olds have to, you know, somebody has to be 21 to uh, buy a long rifle, which, you know, in this state, I think most people are pretty much offended at that. If, you know, if our young men and women uh, at the age of 18 can join the military, carry a fully automatic weapon around the, the world, the neighborhoods around the world, I mean, I think it's kind of a slap in the face that they come back to the United States and they, you know, they, they can't buy a 22 uh, long rifle. I mean, that's, to me, that's just silly. There's no data to support it. But the bigger issue is a constitutional right is a constitutional right. And so that's kind of who John is. And like I said, John's a nice guy. My uh, my son actually took his daughter to a school dance a couple of years ago. So, you know, we've got some relations, but, but he's just not who we needed this time as, you know, the Second Amendment and other constitutional rights are under attack like this that never been before. You know, speaking of not having the right people at the right time, so we opened the show talking about immigration. Um, you know, I, I just – I can't wrap my arms around the fact that we have no voice, essentially no voice in Washington giving the other side of this issue – um, explaining the lack of compassion for Americans, the lack of compassion for millions of Mexicans when 29,000 a year are slaughtered as a result of this atmosphere and open border that we create that empowers the drug cartels, the tens of thousands dying from illicit drugs in this country, all from the Mexican drug cartels, um, which again is empowered through the migration and we've we have a uh, relentless series of articles on this. I, you wrote a book, and, and I'm very intrigued by this, addressing this point. How do you think, if you go to Washington, you could do some rhetorical jujitsu on this issue and give the other side of the story? Well, you know, and that's my my big th- uh, frustration is Republicans. 
we just take it. And I think, you know, there are certain Republicans actually that believe our uh, immigration policy is is racist. I mean, when just the opposite is true, because it's kind of who your core uh, principles and what you've seen. You know, I've I've been outside the U.S. embassies in both Moscow and Kiev. I've seen parents in tears when they were denied visas to come to this country. So for me, that's a perspective that our our uh, media never shows. Most people don't realize that life expectancy in the Ukraine uh, is ten years less that of Mexico. Uh, GDP per capita is ten uh, is half that of Mexico, and and so they don't understand uh, those people that are sacrificing everything to come here legally. I, again, I have a former business partner from Ethiopia. Uh, life expectancy is 20 years less in Ethiopia, and uh, you know GDP per capita is one fifteenth that of Mexico. And so, if we're going to use these arguments of, of compassion, well, why aren't we allowing Mexicans or uh, Ethiopians to come to this country? Why aren't we allowing Ukrainians or Russians? But the bigger issue for me is that, is that you know I, I believe this country was made for people all over the world, and there's an orderly process to do it. To, to do with it. And the fact of the matter is, you know, when Jorge Ramos gets up and challenges, uh, you know, President Trump, like he did in the, during the election, he's actually taking a, a, a racist position. The very definition of institutional racism is when currently 29% of legal immigrants come from one country, which makes up 2% of the world's population. That's Mexico. 50% of illegal immigration comes from Mexico. 77% of DACA students come from Mexico. That, in any other term, if you were talking about it in a university class, you would define that as institutional racism. And so we have to have people that are willing to, to stand up and articulate that. You know, I've unfortunately, you know, I've, I've been in debates where I was I was debated four to one, where it was the Salt Lake City police chief. It was, uh, you know, the Salt Lake City Chamber of Commerce. And I was able to show the, the facts. And in the end, all they can do is is come up with this. Oh, well, I'm you know, I, I, I don't know about that. I just know I care about these people. Well, that's. That's the problem that gets us into, but nobody's talking about that. Again, there's, there is, uh, just like liberalism almost always hurts the exact same people they say they're trying to help. It's the same with immigration. They're, they're promoting the racist policy. And, and it's kind of like you mentioned, though, you know, here I am supposedly having the tough immigration policy here in the state of Utah. But guess who passed the first human trafficking bill here in the state of Utah? I did. Because I recognize how the number one way that people get caught up in the horrors of human trafficking is the promise of the job. And so you have those individuals, those, the 29,000 that you're talking about that are killed. You have the rape trees that are on the southern border, yep. which are absolutely horrendous. And if you see that, if you go to the border and you see what happens to these individuals – you will never in your wildest dream think that it's incompassionate to entice these kids to come. That the best thing we can do is send the message to say, hey, don't risk your life coming through Mexico where you know you, you have a great chance of dying, you have a great chance of rape, being raped, you have a great chance of many other things. The best, the only way that you're going to come to this country is if you do it the right way. It's the same thing with what's happening with the caravan. You know, that the way that if you really need asylum, talk to the embassy. 
you know, uh, in, in Honduras. But why are we getting these people that are coming? I, I mean, I, I watched an interview yesterday, and you know, tragic situations. But it was their their main reason for coming was basically poverty and uh, you know the difficulty. But why did these people who you know she brought three of her children, you know, this this arduous, you know, you know, fifteen hundred mile journey. But why should she get preference over those that are obeying the law in their native country? And and so we don't explain it very well. You know, we we discriminate really against the middle class uh, Mexican as well, who's not willing to risk their life. Uh, you know, who, uh, why do we uh, why do we reward the person that risked their family's life versus you know the poor Mexican farmers? Who obeyed the law? I mean, we never talk about those individuals, and so it, it it just isn't compassionate. And and for me, that's one of my biggest frustration is kind of the the thing that's credited with what uh, you know Lenin said is, and it really technically wasn't Lenin, but we won't get there. But you know that you, that we're useful idiots, or <laughs> actually, the better Russian translation is useful fool. Is that yeah. we're, we're we think that we're doing the right thing, or many people do, and it actually produces just the opposite. You know, you look at the the National Academy of Science uh, in, uh, article that came out, you know, a number of years ago, a few years ago, that said the primary beneficiary of illegal immigration are the illegal alien themselves and wealthy investors. It's the middle class that bears the brunt of it. Uh, you know, it's the legal immigrant that has done everything right, comes here and, you know, now has to learn rather than just English, has to learn English and Spanish, or, you know, uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission has come out and said that uh, job, that wages are pushed down $2.50. If you're making minimum wage as a new immigrant coming to this country, $2.50 is a tremendous amount of money. And so we we forget about the ancillary problems that come with e- illegal immigration. As you talked about, we don't even talk about, you know, everybody right now is being, we're pushing the drug problem completely on pharma, which I'm not going to say that big pharma doesn't have any blame. I mean, there is a blame. They knew that they had a, a product, but, but that's not where most of the, you know, the three kids that have died in my neighborhood, it's, it's because heroin's $5 a balloon. You know, that's 90% of the uh, the drug uh, problem here in Utah County is controlled by the Mexican mafia. And so, you know, we're rewarding that. And these, these kids that are, uh, that we entice, I mean, I, I we had a conversation off the air, uh, you know, uh, last week where I, I had a friend that uh, happened to protest against the city councilman too close during an election, got thrown in jail temporarily and sat next to this kid, this 14 year old kid from, from Mexico. And he asked, my friend asked, well, what are you in here for? He says, well, you know, I, I get a, a load of drugs. I come across the border, I sell it. And then when I'm done, I get caught on purpose and they fly me home. Well, you know, those drugs are wreaking havoc on our kids. And so we don't talk about the negative uh, problems with it and, and why our our immigration laws actually make a lot of sense if people do it right. And, you know, for example, uh, I was married in the Ukraine. I didn't, you know, I was uh, 27 years old when I was married. I didn't have the assets to sponsor my wife. And so, you know, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, will you sign this affidavit 
you know, because you're basically saying, saying that you'll be responsible for this immigrant's cost to society for two years. And my dad said, okay, Chris, I'll do it on two conditions. One, that you're self-sufficient, that you have a job. And the other, that you have health insurance, because I don't want to be responsible for a $100,000 preemie baby. And and that's, that's the way that the law is supposed to work, because then you know somebody that's coming here for the right reason. You have, you know, I had a network that was helping my wife. You know, we wanted to make sure that she didn't immediately get on uh, food stamps or immediately, you know, get on welfare or, you know, so when you do it right, it makes sense. Yeah. Instead, we, you know, let's be honest. These individuals know that, you know, eight out of 10 of the typical illegal immigrant will vote Democratic as soon as they, you know, get you know, or their kids will. And so it's just a matter of time. We, we're not supposed to be stupid about, uh, you know, immigration. But, you know, I have friends from, from Sweden but because Sweden is so oppressive. Yes, it has a higher standard of living, but these individuals are uh, entrepreneurs. They want to come and be free, and, and yet we discriminate against them. We, sure. we need to bring all, all stratas into this country. We we need to bring the Alfie Evans type of parents into into America, um, yeah. you know, as long as we have freedom. Yeah, and it's interesting because I've noticed in my own just dealings with people from Eastern Europe, there they actually tend to be very conservative because they fled communism, and uh, you know you could imagine if most immigrants were from there coming over our border, uh, I think we'd see a very different reaction. From the no, you you calls. would have, yeah you would have uh, you know you, the the left would be called you know racism white you know these white Eastern Europeans which you know my wife is half Tartar so you know it's left over from Genghis Khan so my wife's not like what you would say a pure you know uh, you know white person but but they do uh, but they understand the more the most important thing is they understand our system of government the freedom that it comes but it doesn't work. You know, and to me, that's the great threat. It's not just, you know, as you talked about national security, that you don't have a cohesive border, but it's it's the mentality, it's the socialist mentality that's coming across. That that that's that's one of the biggest threats. We don't we don't talk about the ideology that killed the most people last century was was socialism. But you know, our kids don't know that Nazi. You know, they're calling Trump Nazi, but they don't know that Nazi comes from national socialism. And that's that's where you get the word Nazi. You know, and so yep. they're promoting a philosophy that you know Frederick Hayek says always leads to loss of freedom and totalitarian. So speaking of socialism and, um, you know, like you said, totalitarianism, loss of freedom, the crown jewel of this is healthcare. That's the linchpin of freedom, of prosperity, of personal debt, of national debt. Um, This is, you know, to me, this along with immigration are the civilization killing issues. And we saw with Alfie Evans this notion that when government controls healthcare, you're done. You're up the creek without an oar. I'm working on a big article now, a series of articles on how our healthcare system, exacerbated by Obamacare, but there a little bit before, is leading to a cartel monopoly where we don't have European socialism. We have venture socialism where kind of these Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac style – 
insurers that are basically stewards of government. I'm just reading literally right now on Twitter as we're recording here. Um, Aetna, 57% of their health insurance revenue came from government programs. Um, yeah, and that's how yeah. they get the market share to get a monopoly. That in turn requires a cartel monopoly on the health provider side, which is why this is my series of articles we're going to put out on why um, since Obamacare's passage, we have the death of private practice in America with the big hospital conglomerates, the healthcare administrator conglomerates buying up. Um, There's been a 100% increase, literally a doubling in the number of private practices they've bought up. They are now all stewards of government both from Medicare, Medicaid, and even the private, as we know, is not private because it's the same insurers and same contracts that get the Medicare, Medicaid contracts. Also, you have the employer mandate, um, the employer tax exclusion. Tons of reasons we have government health care. I don't see anyone – you talk about giving the other side, the compassion side on sovereignty. I don't see anyone giving the compassionate case for free market health care. What do you plan to do? When you get up there to make this an issue? Well, you know, for me, that's one of the things that, you know, it's not just what I can do, it's what I've done in the past. That I've never been afraid, as everybody talks about, uh, you know, well, you just don't care about these individuals. Well, for me, I, again, I was there when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, you know, I had students that went in for, uh, med, uh, for wisdom teeth remo- uh, removal and died. You know, I, my, my father's an oral surgeon. And so when he came over, uh, when I was, uh, when I got married, my mom and dad did, I had been renting a room, uh, and she was chief of surgery. And so she took my dad on a tour of the hospital and my father, when he came back was literally green. I mean, he, he had been in a Marine hospital in uh, Vietnam, had seen less than perfectly sterile conditions. And he told me, he said, Chris, you know, if you get sick, you crawl on a plane and come home. Well, a decade later, we were back actually visiting with two of my, my, my wife went over first with two of my children to visit her parents. I show up, I thought she was going to meet me at the, the bus station and she wasn't there. And so, you know, my two kids were, so we get back and my mother-in-law's in tears and I can find out through my Russian that something about fallopian tube. And so I figured she had an ectopic pregnancy. And so the next morning, I went to the hospital, and I'm walking down this hallway, and all it has is bricks, no mortar, so you know there's no way that it can be sterile. I turn into this room with nine women in the same room with dingy gray sheets, and there's my beautiful wife there, and I just turned around and walked back to the hall and sat down because I knew I was going to pass out. But for me, I know that that system is not compassionate because what it does is it just pushes down the quality of care. You know, she had a seven-inch scar that should have been here, would have been a half-inch scar had that uh, happened here. And so for me, it's not theoretical, but I use the example of what happened to me last summer when I was running. We had something, a a booth out on the 4th of July parade, and somebody came up to me and said, hey, you know, Chris, we, we don't make a whole lot of money, but... Always, we've the one thing we've been able to do is to afford the best health care in the world. And what's happened now with Obamacare is it's pushed the best health care out of, you know, they're kind of, they have now the choice now to be on Medicaid, uh, you know, just because they make too much, the, the premiums have gone up. And so what's going to happen is you're going to have, it's now only going to be the super, super wealthy that get access to the best health care 
in the you know in the system because I can tell you even in the Soviet Union there was two there was two lives there was you know all all people made the same amount of money but certain people uh, if you were part of the political class you had access to special stores and special health care but but we need people to get up and talk about it that you know first it doesn't work and then what it does is again the people that are most hurt are it's the working class, it's the middle class that, that's the most hurt because they now longer, they're going to be forced to go under the government cabal system. Uh, and and, and like I said, it's only the super wealthy that are going to be able to, to afford to have the pure, pure private. But again, you need people that are not afraid to get out and articulate that when they get beat up by the press. I mean, I went before the Desert News Editorial Board here in the state of Utah, which is the leading newspaper. And that's the second question that they asked me was, you know, how do you feel about Medicaid expansion? And I said, well, you know, the problem is, is who you're going to really hurt is when you do Medicaid expansion, just because you double the expansion of Medicaid doesn't mean you're going to have twice the doctors that are going to take Medicaid. And if a doctor has to choose between having a Medicaid patient that's really sick that uh, that they lose money on and somebody that's healthy, they're not going to have to see. They're going to take the, the relatively healthy one. So, it's, again, it's it's the, the lowest uh, in our society that, that have the less resources that are really hurt. But you need people that can get up and articulate that. Sure, and also the, just the way it hurts consumers, all consumers, poor and non-poor, um, because it created a monopoly for the healthcare yeah. systems. I mean, you see it throughout the country. The big cranes and constructions at the major urban hospitals everywhere in this country that started right around the Medicaid expansion, that's where it comes from. The extra facility fees that are paid out for the same procedures done in the private practice, done in a hospital, it is all free money. Um, and they are using that to create a monopoly and it gives them extra market share over the consumer. So this is this is a very now, big problem. You know, a perfect example is here in you know in Provo. You know, years ago we had, you know, it was just a, the the large conglomerate non for profit quote uh, hospital, but you had a pri- private same day surgery tank come in uh, across the street. If they didn't build a great big building, they they built a very efficient building, and they immediately cut the costs of uh, same-day surgery in half. And, you know, uh, you know, magically the nonprofit, you know, started to match it. But uh, you just have free market principles work time and time and time again. And, you know, I like, again, for me, it's not theoretical. My, my, my wife literally bears the scars of socialized medicine. Wow. Um, you know, you, you, you're talking a lot about your, experience in the former Soviet Union living there, <clears throat> meeting your wife there. Um, moving on a little bit to foreign policy. So in case you haven't noticed, Russia's in the news a lot. Um, yeah. In fact, it's the only thing in the news all day, every day. Um, what exact, what aspects of Russia and Putin do you think are a threat? What are, is not a threat? And what would you do and not do in the Middle East to counter that threat? Well, you know, one of the one of the biggest things, uh, you know, is is what you mentioned, knowing what is a threat and what's not a threat. You know, uh, when I went in front of the Desert News editorial board, you know, they, you know, the, the current, uh, you know, John Curtis, who I'm running against, you know, he immediately said, "Oh, I think there should be a special prosecutor." And for me, uh, you know, whether you whether you like Trump or not, 
it's, that's irrelevant because we all have the same constitutional rights. And I told them, I said, you know, the, the problem that you have is I haven't seen any evidence. If I saw evidence, then I would support a special prosecutor. But I said the bigger issue is is that, that Putin actually loves this talk of, of collusion because when we're talking about collusion, we're not talking about the things where he really is a threat. You know, we're not talking about that he, uh, Putin has basically invaded Ukraine. We're not talking about some of the other problems that he's doing. We're not talking about, you know, well, let's, let's see, let's, keep, let's develop our energy prices which, uh, you know, our natural resources here in the state of Utah, which keeps energy prices low so that Putin has less money because they're not, Russia's not Bingo. very efficient at, uh, at producing oil. So, if, you know, if we keep it below $70 a barrel, that really kind of starves them. But if we, we, we could crush that. Crazy, yep. Yes. Yeah, we can. But, it, you know, but if you let it go higher, then Putin has all this extra money. It's the same with Iran. You know, Iran. Getting their natural resources, they're not. It's much more expensive for them to get oil than it is for Saudi Arabia. So you keep energy prices low, and they can't make money off it, which means they have less money to cause uh, problems in the Middle East. And it's and, funny and then for me, you know. But by the way, I was just saying the interesting thing is with the Iran deal. So the big issue now with the deadline are, are energy sanctions, and. That is the, that is how you starve Iran to death, and that's where Russia comes in because Russia's trading with them. Russia bought a bunch of um, – thanks to the Iran deal, which is why Russia supports it. They bought a bunch of heavy water from the Iraq facility in Iran, and uh, in, in addition, in exchange for that, they're exporting uranium literally under the guidelines of the deal. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is that is really where the Russia threat is. Well, no, it is. It's a, you know, you look at the whole Clinton here in Utah. Speaking of uranium, uranium is you know we have natural, we have some of the best uranium in the world here in Utah. And if you allow us to uh, you know to develop it, that helps rural Utah, but it also helps national security because we're not we're not giving money to our adversaries, uh, you know, to import uranium. And so it's, it's all connected, but a lot of people don't see it or to see how unhealthy the radical environmental movement is in the state in is here in the United States, because when we impose those radical environmental prices or policies and drive up prices, we're helping the bad actors around the world, the Venezuelas, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons Venezuela is having so much problems is because oil prices are relatively low, but people have to see that. I mean, then we can get into the whole understanding of, you know, you know, having studied in the Middle East, you know, Americans just don't understand Islam. We don't understand that Islam is uh, not compatible with a democratic society. And, you know, if I have to choose between a, a sectarian dictator and a religious dictator, I'll take the sectarian dictator any time, you know, and we don't understand some of those things and, and they're the absolute hatred of, of Israel or just how they how they view that Honesty is they, they believe that, that they don't have to be honest. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's many things that we could talk about foreign policy, about how, um, you know, especially President Obama just simply doesn't understand the world. So I take that to mean you are for pulling out of the Iran deal, but not for getting involved in Syria, which is the exact opposite of what Macron you know, the French uh, president and some of the establishment Republicans are pushing. 
No, that, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, people don't understand. I mean, let's let's be honest. Let's, let's don't you know we don't have to mince words. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Assad is not a great guy. But what but what people forget is that there was Jewish communities that had that existed in Syria for uh, for thousands of years. There were Christian uh, groups that lived in Syria for thousands of years. You know, ISIS comes in uh, and, uh, you know, wipes those uh, uh, Jewish communities out, wipes those Christian communities out. And like I said, that's where you have to, you have to have a realistic, you know, would like, would I like everybody to have a democratic republic? Absolutely. But, but, but I also understand there's complications and it's, you know, you can't enforce that on, on people and you can't get involved in places where you, you've got to have the end game. You know, it's just like what happened in Libya. I mean, I was in, uh, I was living in Europe when uh, the two, uh, several U.S. servicemen were killed in a nightclub bombing uh, in, in Germany. And Ronald Reagan sent a message very clearly to, uh, you know, Gaddafi, hey, don't you do this. He bombed his personal palace. We didn't hear from Libya for quite some time. And then, you know, President, you know, Secretary of State Clinton gets in and takes out Gaddafi. But what do we have now? We have ISIS. We have every bad actor running amok in, in Libya. And so, you know, you, you've got to be smart about some of these these policies. Well, a foreign policy that's smart is something that's very elusive in Washington. There seems to be nobody uh, pursuing that. You know, moving back to your home state, um, you served in the legislature, and obviously, we've seen in recent years legislatures have become a joke. That basically they're downstream from the federal government. The federal government controls everything at a federal level. All the market distortions of the programs at a federal level. So even the red states like Utah, they wind up becoming nothing but schleppers for the federal government. Is that has that been your experience in a state legislature in a red state that basically a lot of the Republicans are just trying to gobble up as much funding as they could find rather than trying to reorient the pyramid of governance um, and the yeah. responsibility? Yeah, no, that's and that's one of the main things that I'm I'm running on is what I believe that there needs to be a rebalance according to the constitutional principles of the relationships between the federal government and uh, and the states. That relationship needs to be fixed to what I think it really is supposed to be in the Constitution. And then the other part too, the the, the big problem that we have is we need to. Uh, evaluate the relationship between the various branches of the federal government as well, where, for example, you know, it was never intended for the executive branch to have lawmaking authority, but Congress has given so much uh, authority to the executive branch through rulemaking authority that it's a, it's a joke. There's no reason that, you know, you, you ask your local congressman, well, the EPA just basically put me out of business because of this rule change. And they say, well, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't do anything about it. Or you have here in Utah with so much public land, the BLM or the Forest Service will come in and, uh, you know, just t- put a rule to just put the business out. And they've done that through rulemaking authority. And I believe that that rulemaking authority needs to be clawed back uh, to the legislative branch. You know, uh, Rand Paul has had a bill that, you know, if a, if a rule is going to have more than $100 million effect on the economy, the Congress has to vote on it. And I think $100 million is too, uh, too high, but, but we need people to, 
to do that. For me as a legislator, there was nothing more frustrated than me having a constituent come to me and say, hey, here's a problem. And I would say, hey, okay, here's the solution. Let's go fix it. I would take the bill to ledge research. They would draft. They would start to draft the bill, and then they would say, well, I'm sorry, the federal government says that you can't do that. And to me, that is a big problem, you know, whether it's, you know, in the state of Utah, 6% of our education budget comes from the federal government, but they give us 90% of the rules. Uh, you know, they, they, they pass rules to just squash rural Utah, uh, you know, with trying to develop uh, natural resources. And so for me, that is a big thing. And it's uh, until you actually serve and see how despotic, in many cases, the federal government is, it's... It's, it's hard to imagine that the federal government has that much authority. You know, for me, it's not in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. You know, the federal government shouldn't be doing it. And, you know, you look at those things when, you know, occasionally uh, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi was asked, well, where do you get that authority? And she just kind of laughed. You know, she, they have no, she has no concept of the Constitution. And so that needs to be reoriented. Uh, and for me, that's, that, that's a big thing. You know, you look at the state of Utah and what is it? I'm, I'm making it up off the spot, but is it something like 70% of the land is federally owned? Yeah, no, it's, it's 67%. So, you're, okay. you know, you're, you, you, you were close. You so, know. 67%. And I know the Utah reps have been yelping about this forever. They've introduced legislation. It's never gone anywhere. Do you plan on raising hell about this, or do you think that there's other leverage points that are stronger in order to give power back to uh, the Western states? Well, I, I think you you know you you go for the home run. You know, for for me, I would eventually you know I mean if you if you read you know Senator Mike Lee, uh, I actually in 2010 passed a bill, and this is before Senator Lee was actually a a senator, and I had him come testify about it. That you know, it was never the original intent for the Constitution for the federal government to own so much of a state uh, process, and you know, it actually specifically says it's not supposed to be more than ten miles square. And uh, you know, a, a year or so after he testified, he gave me a copy of the Constitutional Convention, and the reason that was put in the Constitution is because the founders recognized that if the federal government controlled that much, they would exercise undue influence. And so, you know, if ever there's a state that's had undue influence by the federal government, it's the state of Utah. But, you know, a couple of the things that we absolutely have to do, you have to have, we have to get rid of the Antiquities Act or at the very least get Utah exempted like uh, Wyoming and Alaska is, is because when we're a flyover state for, for the Democrats, you know, I mean, we're the only state that gave Ross Perot more votes than Bill Clinton twice. Huh. So they kind of use this as this this playground where, you know, all of a sudden uh, Bill Clinton did the grand staircase, almost 2 million square miles of property he made into a national monument. Didn't even come to Utah. Did it in uh, Arizona by the Grand Canyon rather than come to Utah. But there's, there's $3 trillion of the cleanest burning coal in the grand staircase. There's lots of natural resources, which... You know, we're having the problem that rural Utah is is really dying because, you know, they used to send their kids off to college and they could come back with an engineering degree and work in the mines or a forestry degree to come back and work with, you know, managing lumber harvests and stuff like that. But now all those communities have are, are tourism jobs, which, you know, I mean, you can own a, own a hotel or own a, 
you know, restaurant where you can be a maid and a waiter. You know, I was a waiter for seven years of my life in college. It was a great college job, but that's not why I went to college. Dang it. I mean, you're really ticking me off here because I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, these issues, unlike some of the other issues we talk about that the establishment doesn't want to touch, these issues on paper, pretty much every single elected Republican from states like Utah and Idaho and Wyoming and Montana, um, they've pushed what you're saying and they don't do anything. It never goes anywhere. So my question is, what do you how do you think you could take this to the next level? Well, you know, one of the problems that the Western land, you know, the West has done is we've always looked at it as a, a public land. You know, if you go, you know, if you go east of the Mississippi, very, there's very few, you know, public lands in a lot of states. So it's not an eastern state. But one of my beliefs is that we need to coordinate it, you know, because you have states like Louisiana. They have problems with the Army Corps of Engineers telling them what they have to do with their shrimp and shrimping chills or their marshes. You know, you've got other states that do want to drill off their uh, uh, coasts. And and so for me, I, I, we've, we've got to frame it more of the, kind of like you were talking about is trying to find that balance between the federal government and the states, not just a public land state. And so that's kind of my criticism a little bit of what Republicans have done in the past. It, you know, just made it a public land state. It's not a public land state. It is a, uh, whether you believe a state is uh, sovereign or not, you know, and so you can find issues where uh, other states that are, would, that you would have a better connection to, uh, um, you know, to, to kind of their local issues that is just really the intrusion of the, the, the federal government that becomes the issue and then we push it back. I mean, part of it, too, is the size. I mean, you know, I'd love to have you come out to Utah sometime, and I can show you, you know, the size of these uh, uh, national monuments that they just all of a sudden, they make it so you can't even touch it. You know, when Zinke came out, Secretary of Interior Zinke came out, you know, they were flying around. I mean, they were flying around in a helicopter for an hour more than an hour and didn't reach the bat, you know, didn't go around the boundary of the national monument. People have, I mean, that's, that's bigger than some states, you know? And so when people understand what is happening to these communities and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is completely different. Some of it is just education of how big of a deal it is, but, but again, how much Utah can actually help our national security through energy uh, development. Is there um, anything else you feel you've done in the state legislature that would give our listeners some sort of a glimpse as to what you want to do on a federal level? Maybe you were stymied at a state level, um, but that you fought for and that you want to take it to the next level if you go to Washington. Well, the big, one of the biggest things is, again, I, I'm not just a talker. I actually get out, you know, I speak at uh, Second Amendment rallies. I practice what I preach. And one of the things I was able to do in the, in the Utah legislature when I went is kind of the unspoken rule was don't cause too many problems. You know, in six years, we'll give you a chairmanship and you can't, then, then we'll allow you to do something. Well, I came in with a group of individuals. I found four other individuals who were like-minded and we weren't willing to do that. We immediately started to push the agenda. My sophomore year, we swayed every leadership race in the House, which gives you a tremendous amount of influence. And we drug people around with our agenda. This year, with, you know, you've got so far, you've got 56 Republicans that aren't going back. This is a great opportunity to get somebody that knows how to build coalitions. I mean, just imagine if I was able to get 30 people to, to tell leadership, hey, you know, uh, 
you know, we're not going to vote for a spending increase or a debt ceiling increase unless it has a 10-year plan to get us back to a balanced budget. So, you know, on a Friday night at 11.59, don't come to us and say, hey, you're shutting down the government. Well, if you did that, if you were able to build a group like that, they would have to address it. Or if we, you know, got back and got a group and said, hey, you know, the big problem is we, you know, People love crises, and so they wait for the last minute. Why don't we do like like our state does? You know, the very first in the, uh, the Utah legislature, the very first day, uh, the second day, we passed what's called the base budget. That way, if everything falls apart, government still operates at 5% of, of last year's budget. You know, and so rather than having these government shutdowns where everybody's afraid that they're going to get beat up because the seniors aren't getting their checks or Medicaid, you know, we we say, okay, if we can't agree on something, we're going to go to, you know, 5% of last year's budget. Or I'd be happy with just agreeing to, to this year's budget, but not, you know, a $1.3 trillion omnibus bill because people are afraid of the bad press of, of, of that. So, you know, for me, those are some of the things that I want to do. But, but we need people that are willing to stay, you know, to stand up. So in that vein, I take it, if Jim Jordan were to challenge Kevin McCarthy for the party leadership, you would be in Jordan's camp. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I got asked that on uh, uh, you know a, a local radio show. I would I would be very much in, in that. And like I said, because something has to happen. I mean, I I've, I've lived through hyperinflation where everybody that did everything right, you know, that were frugal, saved their money, seized their life savings, wiped out in a year. And that's where we're going to be headed if we don't get fiscal house in order. But we need people that are willing to stand up, take the tough positions. And, you know, like I said, for me, a lot of these things aren't theoretical for me. I, I have lived through hyperinflation. And so, you know, I see the that it's not compassionate. You think that it's, you know, oh, well, you're going to have to cut budgets and that's not compassionate. Well, wait until you see... You know, you see seniors all of a sudden see their life savings evaporate, and then they're completely dependent on government because they no longer have the ability to an income. That's not compassionate. And so it's it's being able to withstand that. You know, one of the best compliments I ever got when uh, after I left the Utah legislature was is I went back up the year after, and one of my moderate friends said, "Chris, we we miss you back here." Because you made it easy to vote right, because you took the the arrows, and we don't seem to have a lot of people that are willing to take the arrows now. You know that are are willing to be called racist or fascist or uncompassionate, but but we need people that can go back and articulate why why liberal policies really aren't compassionate. So, you know, I know you've got a great uh, listening audience. I would love to have support. You know. I've got a website, heritageforcongress.com. You know, if there's groups that, that, that donate campaigns and want, want me to come speak, I'll, I'll, I'll go over anywhere in the nation to, to, to that for a fundraising event. But uh, I do believe that there is a big difference uh, between myself and the opponent. And, you know, I, I do. I appreciate, you know, we kind of got to know each other with you talking about uh you know, Utah's unique caucus system. But, you know, we need like-minded people like you and myself that are willing to stand up and make a difference. This is the critical time. If we don't make those differences now, we're going to be in a world of hurt. 
Yep. I mean, we could talk about Kane West from now until, uh, you know, the end of the primaries and then sleep through the primaries and then wake up and say, hey, uh, why are Republicans doing this and that? Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't engage in the primaries, and that's why we definitely have this platform. Um, we're just about out of time. Just one uh, quick question I've asked all my uh, uh, candidates that have come on the show. You know, in, in recent years, conserv- conservatives have, have been confronted with the pro- following problem. Basically, every single time someone is about to gain momentum and looks like they're going to knock off an establishment guy, they drudge up something on him. It's often not true, but sometimes they strike gold. And in, a, in an era when nobody could control themselves, there's often it's a financial scandal, it's infidelity. Could you promise our listeners if they were to support you – Nothing that you've done in the past, no one's perfect, obviously, but nothing you've done would embarrass them, such as an infidelity or a tax scam or a financial scam. No, I mean, I, I can promise you, promise you that. And, and you know, the, one of the advantages that you have with me is having already been in the limelight. If those things were out there, they would have tried to nail me when I was taking on the Deseret News or the mainstream media here in the state of Utah or the establishment. But, you know, I've been married. I just celebrated my 25th anniversary this year. I've never been uh, uh, anything close that can be uh, or a- anything that could be seen as infidelity. Uh, I've got five great children. My, my wife is the love of my life. In fact, I get accused of using my wife too much because uh, they say that, you know, I put words into my my wife's mouth. And <laughs> if you know my wife, she's, you, you cannot put a, a, any words into a strong Ukrainian woman's uh, mouth. She's got her <laughs> views on socialism that she didn't get them from me. She got them from experience. Real experience. Wow. You know? That's great. So it's HerodForCongress.com. Um, we'll put it in show notes. That's two R's. Uh, we'll also link to your book on Amazon, um, so people could get a better sense of what you know what your talking points are on immigration. I know an issue that our audience really cares about. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris, and and best of luck. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And keep up the good work, Daniel. I really Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That was. Chris Herod, candidate for Congress in Utah's 3rd Congressional District, running against just a one-year incumbent from a special election last year, uh, John Curtis. And we'll see what happens there. But um, he's a really good guy. You know, as he mentioned on air, and I've said this before, depending on the candidate, a lot of them just asked to come on the show. I never heard of them before. I never spoke with them a minute before having them on. Others I have spoken to, and and we did have a pretty extensive conversation, uh, much longer than I planned last week. And I I really like him. You know, this candidate I really do like. But let me know your thoughts, and uh, let me know what type of questions you want me to ask. What are you looking for in candidates? I'm always looking to improve on what we're doing here. And like I said, I am just feeling miserable, so I'm going to pack it in for the day. But we have a lot more coming on our big-ticket issues. Make Conservative Review your one-stop shop. Uh, Hopefully, later this week, we will have a Foreign Policy Friday deep dive into what's going on in Iran, um, Hezbollah, their presence in Latin America and how that affects us, what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, Our backwards foreign policy continues, but is there some hope with Pompeo and Bolton? We'll see. Um, And then, as always, we're definitely going to, like I said, cover that healthcare issue, how the mergers and acquisitions 
of the big healthcare conglomerates is not free market and that's being pushed by government programs and government um, loopholes in, in both statute and just just in general, tendentious treatment of this monopoly. Um, very dangerous because I think this is the road to more Alfie Evans in America, not just in Europe. But thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with my uh, crazy voice today. Hopefully next time we'll be better. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.